you want to find your Bibles, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to start our series there. I want to just, as we begin here, thank you on behalf of Karina and myself for all of your prayers and encouragement, cards and kindness uh, as we uh, were back in Portland with Karina's dad's funeral. Uh, so we want you to know how important you are to us and we want to thank you for your love. It is, it is awesome to be a part of a church like Fellowship. And I'll tell you, when you're at a funeral, it makes you really start thinking about what's important in life. Makes you think about purpose, meaning, significance. Shouldn't surprise us. Uh, I mean, we're face to face with the reality that we all pass away that uh, you start asking those questions. There's a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl. You may have heard of him. He's a psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor. He wrote a book, Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, he referenced in 1900s John Hopkins University study that took a poll of 7,948 students from 48 different colleges around the world, asking them what was most important to them or very important to them in regards to a career. Now, what kind of responses do you think they would give? Kind of standard ones like, well, you go to college, you want to make a lot of money, right? If you get a nice job, uh, maybe get married, uh, buy a home. Actually, only 16% of all those surveyed said that they were looking to make a lot of money. 78% of the respondents, however, said finding purpose and meaning in life was most important. Let's fast forward, 2001. Another survey, similar, researchers this time asked 10,000 recent college graduates to indicate what was critical for a good job, and this is how they responded. Interesting work, a sense of accomplishment, adding something to people's lives. That was far more important than security in terms of employment or even making a lot of money, their pay. And then there was just even recently, 2012, two psychologists found that 68% of college students surveyed considered a spiritual calling and a sense of higher purpose critical to them when considering a career. You see, being a person with a purpose is paramount to the human mind. We all want to experience meaning, satisfaction, joy, life. And it is, it is like built into us. It is this yearning desire. And yet so often that is simply not the case. I mean, you're asking questions like, is life really worth living? Can I possibly find joy and purpose in my life. And if you take a step back, every single person in this room at different times, maybe even this morning, struggles with the answer to this question. Like, why am I here? It would be better if I wasn't. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. I, am, I feel like I'm a failure. I keep missing it. Uh, seems like everybody else has got it figured out. I don't. I feel like I'm on the margins of society. It seems like no one cares. Doesn't even seem like God even exists. And we want answers to these questions. It is what our society is wrestling with. I mean, when you consider, like, all the international conflict that is taking place, look at the devastation of all the storms and the earthquakes that we're going through, the tensions in our world, not to mention all the trials and troubles that we go through. And we're starting to ask these questions, is it even really worth it to live? Where in the world do you even find meaning, purpose, or even that remote idea of joy? God addresses those questions head on in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, 
the book of Ecclesiastes, probably a book you've never heard preached. Oftentimes, it's just completely skipped over. Most Christians consider the book of Ecclesiastes like an enigma. It's just like it could not be understood. You've read it once, and you're like, this is leaving me with more questions and puzzles than answers. I think I'll try to find something else. Uh, if you took philosophy class, this may have been the only biblical book that was referenced. Like, you need to read this. You want to see if the Bible's got answers to your questions? <laughs> read the book of Ecclesiastes, and that'll like put, put you in a situation where you're just kind of eliminating the Bible altogether. It is perhaps the strangest book in the Bible. And oftentimes, it's completely just dismissed and overlooked, and that is the problem. God addresses the most important questions we are asking And he does so through the book, the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's take a look at what God has to say as we begin our study of this book. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So here we have this introduction. Who is this this preacher, this Kohelet? That's what the word is there. Someone who calls together an assembly. Well, Uh, We know that he's the son of David and he's king in Jerusalem. Now, David had David was the second king of Israel. There is a third king. That third king is a guy by the name of Solomon. Now, David had uh, other sons, but Solomon was the one who was selected. And it's really a fascinating story. When you look at Solomon's life, you can read it in the first 11 chapters in the book of first Kings. He begins with such humility I mean, God comes to him in a dream and says, you can have anything you want. Ask me whatever you would like. What would you, if you have that opportunity, ask God for? I need more money. If you could add like another hundred bucks to my paycheck, I think I'd be good with you, God. Is that what you'd ask? I love it if my kids got along for one day. Is that what you would ask? What would you ask? I'll tell you what. This guy had humility and he understood the scope of what it means to be a leader. And so you know what he asked for? He asked for wisdom. And it's like God was so moved for a response that you desire wisdom from me so that you can fulfill your role that I have given you as king of Israel. And God not only gave him wisdom where he became the wisest man who ever walked the face of the earth, but he gave him everything else as well. Riches, acclaim. And it's an interesting study. If you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, you see that this is a person who has unlimited resources, all sorts of time. He can buy, do whatever he wants. And he's obviously got a significant empire. He is a ruler. He's involved in in affairs of state. And by this time, Israel is kind of like the pinnacle nation of the world, the empire. He's like he is well known. And so the uh, Jewish tradition holds that it is Solomon who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, you think like, wow, how cool is that? You start off and you're asking God for wisdom. You've got this empire that is flourishing. Pretty soon people from all over, like even like the queen of Sheba, are coming to hear your wisdom. Your greatness and your kingdom are known throughout. And you think like, man, talk about smooth sailing for the rest of your life. You've got it all. I want to put a huge warning out there for you. You can have it all. And you can have a really good start, but you can really mess up your life. Solomon did. You read through 1 Kings, and by the time you get to chapter 11, you find out in verse 3, his affections and his attentions has gone 
elsewhere. You find in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3, that by this time, Solomon had married 700 wives and he had 300 concubines, which is uh, a female who has a legal status, but it's inferior to that of a wife. I mean, this guy, all of his attention and his affections went to all these women. And these women, most of these were marriages, not for like, oh, I just really love you today and this one tomorrow. No, 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 this. This was, these were like political alliances, many of them. Lust and political power drove him. I want you to know something, that these women are led him to start worshiping their gods. After all, somehow he had, they, he had cap, they had captured his affections, and now their gods started garnering his worship. And it led to Solomon being referred to as a man who had a divided heart. He was going in two different directions. He knew the one true God. He had been blessed immensely. But now he was wandering off in all sorts of directions. I want to just say something. You could have had a really good start to life. You may have been worshiping God and doing quite well, but you want to be real careful. You can blow up your life. It happens. It happened with Solomon. And sin always has consequences. Solomon, uh, he probably wrote the book of Ecclesiastes that would put him uh, approximately about 931 B.C. Jewish tradition holds that Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon in his early years. Speaking of romantic love, and you get the picture of this royal wedding in the Song of Solomon, which is uh, the book right after Ecclesiastes. They, They held that he wrote the book of Proverbs in the middle of his life, where he started collecting all the wisdom passed on to him by King David, as well as some other collections of wisdom that God had incorporated in this book of Proverbs. And after a life of being wayward, though, and just walking away from God at the very end of his life, there was brokenness and repentance. And at the very end, he wrote this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book to address the issue what is real meaning and purpose in life? Um, now, Jewish tradition doesn't by, is not in any means inspired, but not only does that fit with the book of Ecclesiastes, but if that is true, then Ecclesiastes is kind of like this monument to Solomon's recommitment to God at the end of his life. And that is the particular position that I hold. It is very interesting that the book of Ecclesiastes in some respects, is like a treatise for the nations. There is something very interesting that Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. You might want to write this down here, where Moses said that God would then show the world his wisdom and the wealth and that he was the one behind it. And it was almost like a call that one day there would be this treatise of wisdom that would come. And that's what we have in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's interesting, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon does not refer to God in his personal name, Yahweh, but refers to him as Elohim, the exalted one, a a name that you find of God throughout the Old Testament. Nor does the, the writer of Ecclesiastes refer to the law or the covenants, but rather calling to the worship of the one true supreme God. And it's this book... Part of the reason it's difficult is that you and I, we've got a Western mindset. We like things very linear, very logical, right? A lot of the world doesn't think that way. You might be married to someone that doesn't think that way. It's, this is a book that sees things interconnected, and it's like a spiral. 
Okay, and it's going to hit multiple topics, but it's going to be driving home to a point. And so we find him, the preacher. This is the word Kohelet, and this is probably Solomon's pen name. It speaks of one who assembles or one who gathers people together for the dispensing of wisdom. To give, and that's what we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's as if God is using him at the end of his life to call the world to listen to the wisdom of God to explain ultimate meaning and purpose. And, and he's calling an assembly. And the Greek word for assembly uh, is ekklesia. And that's where this book, Ecclesiastes, gets its name. It is the assembling together where God gives the wisdom that is needed for ultimate purpose and meaning in life. Now, you would expect that a guy like Solomon, he'd, he'd write a book at the end of his life like what? Seven Habits of Highly Successful Kings. Isn't that what you expect? That sounds like a bestseller. And you and I'd buy that, right? Well, life is a lot more than being success. Some of you are realizing that. I know when you're young, it's all about success. I've got to make a name for myself, right? I've got to make some money. But you hopefully come to a place where it's about significance. It's not just about success. And, you know, we'd really like to have success and significance, but so often that is not our experience. We don't experience joy. We feel rather insignificant. We don't even know what our purpose is. And that's why Solomon begins as he does, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Makes you want to just kind of keep reading, right? Solomon is immediately addressing the issue and he's taking it on head on. When you and I hear the word vanity, we think of arrogance, right? You know, the person that spends like an hour in front of the mirror, just kind of like admiring. How do I get so good looking like this? You know what I'm saying? I can't wait for the rest of the world to see me. And I'm not saying that any of you do that or anything like that. But we usually think vanity in terms of arrogance. But vanity, as it's used in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, speaks of that which is fleeting. It has kind of three different ways it's referred to. First is like fleeting, like life is like vapor life. Uh, vanity is also used to refer to that which is futile. It's like meaningless. And vanity is also referred to as that which is incomprehensible. It is enigmatic. It just simply cannot be understood. And the book of Ecclesiastes uses all three definitions. And he says, vanity of vanities. It's like a superlative. You see this in the Old Testament. Like, holy of holies. Lord of lords, right? You you see that. Uh, The reason that they use these intensives, like heaven of heavens, is to express like the ultimate degree of a particular quality. And Solomon begins by saying life is absolutely, completely vain and meaningless. And uh, he just keeps going, vanity of vanities. It's like vapor. It doesn't mean anything. And you and I, when we stop and hit the pause button... Don't you start to think that way? I mean, you think about it. Think about your life. You're asked, you kind of get up in the morning. You're like, what in the world am I doing? I get up. I, uh, I, I eat some cereal. I brush my teeth. I go to work. I, I realize that, you know, the reason my hair is a mess, you know, you're like, cause of, it's because of the curse. You know, things don't work the way they are. I'm not sure why I do this. I have the same old job. I come home. I eat some food. I watch some TV, and I go to bed, and I just keep doing this over and over and over 
again. That's what, Paul, that's what Solomon is saying. Um, if, if you're not getting this definition about vanity of vanity, I got an illustration of life. Watch this. I've been training for this, by the way. What Solomon is saying at the very beginning of this book is vanity of vanities. This is your life. That's it. Just air. It's gone. You kind of blow around a little bit. People watch it. Like, oh, there goes the balloon. And it's done. Why does life seem so meaningless? Why does it? Well, let's take a look at what he has to say. Life seems meaningless because, first of all, our life quickly passes. Look at chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work? Which he does under the sun. A generation comes, a generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He asks this rhetorical question, demands a negative answer. What advantage? What is left over after the transaction is complete? That's what the word advantage means. What is it? What, what, what's left over? What is to show for your life? And I want you to see perhaps the key phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you want to understand it. It's found right there in verse 3. It is, which he does under the sun. That phrase is used 29 times. It's a phrase that speaks of life at a horizontal, ground level, limited, human. It is like to consider life where God is not a part of the equation. It is life under the sun. It's as if like this large, huge bull was placed over the earth... And God simply has no involvement. It's just life under the sun. It's just whatever you can squeeze out of this life, the horizontal life. You have no consideration of God. You're just not really even aware of him. And it's as if like the heavens and God himself are completely cut off. That is life under the sun. And he says a generation goes and a generation comes. You're born, you die. On one page, we got birth announcements in the newspaper. Next, we got obituaries. It's just life. It's like what happens is when you see how uh, quickly life passes, when you talk about the vanity and you start thinking about life, what it does is it creates a crisis of life under the sun. It seems so meaningless. And so we work hard all of our lives when we get up and we go to bed and we just keep living and we, maybe you get married, maybe you have some children. And, we, and next thing you know, it's over. And it's like, what is there to show this? What is the ultimate meaning and purpose behind this? I mean, you lose everything. You take nothing. And it doesn't seem to even make sense. This past year, um, our daughter, Christiana, became the proud owner of a hedgehog, a bona fide hedgehog, okay? And, uh, yeah, there it is. Okay, there's Hedgie right there. Apparently, uh, there was a friend of Christiana's that was moving to Michigan. They didn't think uh, Hedgie the hedgehog would make it. And lo and behold, after a quick conversation at home, didn't even know what happened. Next thing you know, we got a hedgehog living with us. All right, now, I was kind of interested in the hedgehog because, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, I'd seen the game, not real good at playing it, but I was thinking like, wow, this thing's going to be super fast, you know, like a hamster on steroids, you know, and, uh, you know, I've seen the game. I want you to know I was mildly disappointed, okay? This Hedgehog, okay, you want to see Hedgehog, you want to see where he lives? Next slide, take a look, right here. All right, there's, there's not a Hedgy. This is Hedgie's domain, okay? He basically lives under that log, okay? It's kind of hollowed out there. He came out here for the picture where he's eating. All he does 
is he basically sleeps all day, he comes out, he eats the food, that little green thing is like his wheel, and you're thinking like, oh, it'd be super fast like the uh, video game. No, it's, it's awkward, it's slow, he's not very fast at all, and then he's got his little water bowl, and his whole life is basically sleeping, he gets up at night, he, he eats, he works out on the exercise wheel, wheel, drinks some water, makes a few messes all over the place, and goes back under his log, and that's all he does. And you're like, what a... Man, that's it? That's all he does? And I was thinking, you know, what if the hedgehog watched our life? So what happens? We get up, we feed our face, we brush our teeth, we go and we work on the wheel. Someone's telling us we're doing a bad job. We're like, I hate my job. I go home, I eat some food, I watch Netflix, and I go to bed, and I do it all over, right? It's the same sort of insanity. We're just in a different box, right? And that's what Solomon's saying. You know why life seems so meaningless? It so quickly passes. There's just nothing to show for it. One generation goes, generation comes. There's just nothing to show for your work. Let me give you another reason why life seems so meaningless. Look at the beginning in verse 4 here, 4b. Look at nature's patterns. They never cease. He says, like the earth. In contrast to humans, okay, the earth is like permanent we're very transitory the earth on the other hand it just keeps going on and on it remains forever and notice he says and the sun rises and the sun sets its movement is repetitive and it's progressive and hastening to its place it rises there again and so here he's talking about the fact of like the sun really interesting that hebrew word for hastening is panting and what Solomon is saying is like, if you look at the sun, it just appears to be a runner endlessly going around a track, right? It's just like it, it finishes one cycle, you see it, and it's like panting to get around. So it makes its another appearance. It's like you're on this perpetual race that never ends, and you just go around and around and around. There seems to be no meaning. It's pointless. It's meaningless. And life seems meaningless when you look at the sun and like, look at this, it just goes around. It's, there's no point to it. And then uh, he says, you know, it's really interesting about the sun. It's, it's, it's just like it rises again. It just keeps moving around, trying to get back to its place. There's a guy by the name of Ernest Hemingway. And he wrote his first major work that he wrote was called The Sun Also Rises, which is actually from this verse. And what it did is it looked at a lost generation of Americans and Brits after First World War who simply despaired of life. And the book not only caught a culture... But it caught his life. It just seems meaningless. And then notice what else he says. Look at, he references the wind. It is blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. The wind is like going north and south, and in Israel, sometimes the wind does that, okay? So... Sun's going east and west, and then you got the, the wind going north and south, and it's just kind of blowing in these patterns. And what it looks like is it's like, there's just nothing to it. It just kind of keeps going. There's no purpose to this. I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. And he's like, kind of, that's what like life is like. You ever read the book? Probably not, but probably watched the movie Gone with the Wind. Yeah, Gone with the Wind is this great novel. And basically what it says is everything in your life, even your most cherished relationships and possessions, one day it just vanishes with the wind. Life seemingly is so vain. And look at Elsie then. He references verse 7, the rivers. 
All the rivers flow into the sea. And yet the sea is not full. I mean, it keeps going and going, yet the sea is never full to the place where the river flows. And there they flow again. It just keeps going on and on. Nothing seems to happen. Nothing is satisfied. It makes life seem so meaningless. Not only does our own life quickly pass, but you look at nature's pattern, it never ceases. But let me give you another reason why life seems so meaningless that, that Solomon gives us. Look at verses 8 through 11. Our heart's satisfaction never increases. If the sun, the wind, and the mighty rivers have really nothing to show for all the energy that's expended, then what hope do we have of accomplishing anything in this life? It's like our hearts are just never satisfied. There's a popular novelist named Kathy Koja. I would not necessarily recommend her books, but she claims to spin her tales from threads of bleak nothingness. Listen to this quote. She speaks of a black hole that is at the heart of every novel. The emptiness we each carry close to our hearts. The emptiness of being alive in a world that doesn't care. And the way we fill that Freudian hole, well, that's the novel. So that's, she says, that's how I write my books. Just this hole. And how people just fill that hole. That's what I write my books about. So she was asked about this in an interview to kind of talk more, expand upon this statement. And this is what she replied. Everyone is cored by that existential void, the deep hole in the heart that cries for radiance. Our entire consumer culture is predicated on the belief that if you stuff enough things down that hole, you can finally satisfy it into silence. That has never been the case. Nor does creativity, sex, art, or even love fill that hole. And that's because we are never satisfied. Look what he says, verse 8. There is there's no satisfaction under the sun. All things, verse 8, are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing it, nor is the ear filled with hearing it. It's kind of like, if you want to know where the stones, Rolling Stones, got, I can't get no satisfaction, right here. All they had to do was read the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what Solomon's saying. You can't find any satisfaction under the sun. Your, your whole eye is never satisfied. You see some things like, wow, that's really cool. And about 10 minutes later, like, I'm so bored out of my mind. You hear something that's really nice. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's really cool. And guess what? Soon, huh, I need something else, man. I, I, this didn't do it for me. It's life. It's so worrisome. We're, we're never satisfied. And by the way, this insatiable desire fuels the constant production and consumption of entertainment. We just need something to fill that void and that hole. That explains a lot of our culture. We're just looking for it, yearning for it. I mean, we're flipping through channels faster than we can uh, almost push the button. We're just like, oh, I just got to get a fix. I just need something for that hole for this moment. And it describes our life. We're never satisfied. Not only is there no satisfaction under the sun... But look at what he says in verse 9 and 10. There is nothing new under the sun. That which has been is what will, which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. If there is, if, is there anything of which one might say, see, it is new. Already is it existed before, for ages which were before us. 
There's nothing new under the sun. It's like that French proverb. The more things change, the more we find that they stay the same. There's nothing new under the sun. We can't be satisfied. And so, like in our generation, we, we saw this. You know what? We need a God. And it's certainly not going to be the God of Revelation, the God of creation, and the God of the Bible. No. we got a good alternative. Let's go with science. And so we have tried to think that, you know, by discovery and to somehow we're going to discover some new idea or some new concept or some new reality. And it's going to fill the void and change it from being those who are never satisfied to they're like, ah, I've got it. Because science has finally provided the answer. And yet it's not. There are a lot of very sharp people that have given themselves to this particular pursuit that science will satisfy and it doesn't. So you know what happens? They flip to the whole other end of the spectrum and they go off in like new age spirituality or some postmodern thought because that void cannot be satisfied. And when he says about nothing new under the sun, I mean, really, it all kind of falls. All developments seem to fall in like major categories like transportation or production or medicine or communication. Like I was thinking about this, like. Wireless communication, you know how cool that is? I mean, think about it. wireless communication. I could call you on a little piece of plastic in my hand, and I could talk to you. For one, I could see you, and there's like no wires. That's, that's pretty fascinating. You say, that's new, and it's, it's really cool. But you know when they developed the telegraph? Do you know? They were absolutely in awe. This was a game changer. We could actually communicate across the street, Right? And it all falls in these general categories. What Solomon's driving at, though, is, you know what? It doesn't ever address the real issue. It, nothing can fundamentally change the human condition and give you ultimate satisfaction, purpose, and joy. There's really nothing new under the sun. It falls in the same general categories. And so it's kind of like it seems like history isn't going anywhere. They're like that wheel in the hamster cage. We're just going around and around and around. It's not going anywhere. There's nothing new under the sun. And then look at verse 11. For some of you, this will be good news. And for others of you, this will be bad news. He says, verse 11, there is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. The good news is this. If you are worried about what people are thinking about you or thought about things that you've done, Verse 11, guess what? One day they will think nothing of it. There won't exist. It just won't matter. On the other hand, if you like, man, you know, I'd like a little bit of immortality, even if it's a little bit temporal. I want to be known for something. I want to be big. You know what I'm saying? Guess what? I got bad news for you. It's not going to happen. The bad news is that it's not going to happen. There will be a day where no one is going to think of you at all. You might be thinking a lot about yourself right now. Soon and very soon, no one will think about you. And when you die, there'll be a funeral. Maybe 20 people will come. Maybe 2,000. You don't know. Um, what's going to happen? There'll be a service. And folks are going to kind of catch lunch. Uh, they're going to need to hurry back because someone is covering for them at the office. They're going to go home. They're going to watch some reruns on TV. And they're going to go to bed. And when they wake up in the morning, they're really not going to think much about what happened with your wife. Are you ready for that? Mark Twain was right. The world will lament you for an hour and forget you forever. 
Do you feel completely empty? Do you feel exactly like Solomon saying, life is absolutely vanity? I hope you do. Because from this position of overwhelming emptiness, what God does is he draws us to himself. It's kind of, kind of like a, a cup. It's like it, it's wanting to be filled. It's like a vacant room for a person to come in. When you and I come to the place where we actually value nothingness and emptiness and to see that, whoa, life under the sun is broken and vain. It puts you in a position to receive God and truth. You see, knowing that life is meaningless, like life under the sun, I mean, it can discourage you and it can lead to all sorts of depression. And I want you to know something. You may call yourself a Christian and you might even be a Christian. If you, you can easily slip into life under the sun where you stop thinking about God, it leads you to kind of the same sort of conclusions in life, which explains a lot of what's even going on in the Christendom. We've forgotten God. We're trying to fill the void and we're filling it with stuff or some good morals or some cute stories. And guess what happens? Life seems absolutely vain. And that is what Kohelet is driving to. So what do you do? Do you live it up? Do you give up? Now, what this book is going to tell you is that you look up. You look to God. It's what it's meant to do is to drive you to a point that you understand that life under the sun is vanity. Until you see that there's far more to life than just the here and now. Life under the sun, what happens, it dehydrates our soul to create a thirst that only God can satisfy. And I want you to, for a minute to put on your biblical binoculars. I don't know if you know this, but uh, it's sometimes really helpful to read the end of the book. If you're really worried about the, you know, like your main character in the book you're reading, if they make it and you just can't sleep at night, tell you, just read the end of the book, it'll tell you. They either made it or they didn't, okay? And, uh, you know, like you're studying in school, I can tell you a good piece of advice. Read the end of the chapter or the end of the book. It will tell you what they're driving at. And that is true with the book of Ecclesiastes. Take a look at it. If, you, if you're like, whoa, this is a tough book. What's the conclusion? Voila! Man, it's spelled out. How did we miss this? Look at this. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Look at verses 13 and 14. Look at how he concludes the book. The conclusion. Ah, what is it? It's this. When all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment and everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Let me explain fear God. It has the idea of holding God in reverence and awe. It is to worship and to serve God. It is, it's an all-encompassing. When we hear the word fear, we're like cowering in fear. That's not how the Bible is presenting it. It's presenting that there's a God who is real. To be reverenced, to be worshipped, to be served, to be loved, to adhere to. I mean, yeah, if you disregard him or disobey him, there is some serious fear that you might want to have about that. Because he's the same God that calls to reverence is, verse 14, also going to bring every act of judgment. There is a supreme one in the universe, the one that created all things, the one that created you. And there is a judgment that is going to come, just like explains, everything is hidden. Now, you think you got away with it? And no one knew about this. God does. All of our sin, run through here, done with our hands, whatever you did, God wants you to know there's going to be a judgment coming. 
And so what fearing and revering God does is it brings a life-giving orientation. And obeying God is a love-based response. The reason that you and I obey God is because we love him. If you're not obeying because you love, you're a legalist. You're like, oh, I just got to keep God happy, so I'm going to do these things. No, the conclusion of this book is to fear God, to worship him, to revere him, to serve him, and to obey him. And uh, it's really interesting when you see this, because this is where you and I are going to find true meaning and purpose. There's a psychologist by the name of William Moulton Marston. He asked 3,000 individuals, what have you to live for? And the answer shocked him. He found that 94% were not living at all. They were simply enduring the present while waiting for something in the future. They were just waiting for something to happen, waiting for school to start, waiting for school to get over. They were waiting for the kids to leave the house. They were waiting for folks to get married. They were waiting for uh, something to take like a trip. They were waiting for something to happen. They were just waiting, waiting, waiting. They weren't really living. And evolution has such a pull on the secular mind. It's, you see, it's like you and I, every once in a while, we like kind of creep up out of this, like there's got to be something to this life. And evolution tells you that is a foolish question. When you ask this question, who am I and why I'm here? Evolution wants you to understand you are nothing but a cosmic accident. Who are you? Some human evolved animal looking for purpose and meaning in life. Doesn't exist. Get back in the system. Close your mind. Five, find ten reasons why you won't believe God and you'll think that Christians are idiots and just keep floating along in the system. Historian Sir Arnold Toynbee said this, quote, Of the 22 civilizations that have appeared in history, 19 of them have collapsed when they reached the moral state the United States is in now. You know what? We don't even teach our citizens why we're here. We don't know. We don't know where we came from, by the way. It's from God. We do not know where we're going. It's God. And we do not even know why we're here. It's God. And what Ecclesiastes is doing is bringing you to the end of yourself so that you will see God for who he is. It's like we've missed the big E on the I chart. And of course, nothing makes sense in life. You got two options. Either life is all about you or it's about God. And God has a treatise to the world and says, it is is about me and when you don't have me in your sights and in your heart vanity of vanities all is vanity under the sun you see a god-centered approach puts meaning into what was once meaningless what we need to do is take the vanity of vanities to the holy of holies and all of a sudden life makes sense color is added you see what God is doing is he's bringing us to brokenness so that we'll come to him for wholeness, life, peace, joy. And ultimately, it's pointing to Christ because our hearts are never satisfied until they're satisfied in Christ. Really, the book of Ecclesiastes sets up the gospel. It shows us our need for significance and a saving relationship with God. It calls us to worship and serve God. You see that right here in the text. And what it does is it points us to a shepherd who will pay the penalty of judgment that he's referred to in verse 14. And there is a one who's come, and his name is Jesus, 2,000 years ago, who did just that. He paid the penalty for all of our sin. It's interesting. Jesus said this in John 14:15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Doesn't that sound pretty similar to Ecclesiastes 12:13? If you really want life, it's found in the fearing, the revering of God and keeping his commandments. It applies to every person. And what worshiping God does, it brings the colors of joy and purpose to our lives. When you and I learn to become a daily worshiper of God, we move from living a black and white kind of gray life to a life filled with color. You remember what we just went through in Ecclesiastes uh, 1? Like, for instance, we go from having a meaningless, fleeting life. When you actually start worshiping God, trusting in his son, all of a sudden life has purpose and it has meaning. You understand we are created for worship, to know God, to enjoy God. When we look at like, man, life just seems monotonous when you look at all the patterns of nature. Actually, when you become a worshiper of God, the rising of the sun and the wind and the rivers, everything you see, why they're all declaring the glory of God. It's like the lights come on and you see it and you can appreciate it like you've never appreciated it before. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And when you come to your heart that is never satisfied, guess what? When you become a worshiper of God, it becomes your daily practice. You're, You're proactive in this. What happens is you go from being never satisfied to finding that even in the midst of trials, God satisfies your soul. To find meaning in life, we must look beyond what we see under the sun. And this is the ultimate theme of this book. Ultimate meaning in life is found when we become sincere worshipers of God. Where God all of a sudden fills the void in which he's created that we would know him and enjoy him and if you're looking for something new look to jesus he's the one who provides a new covenant he is the one who gives a new birth he gives a new life i was looking at this morning in revelation chapter 21 verse 5 and god says who sits on the throne said this behold i will make all things new you want something new you need Because ultimate meaning in life is found when we become sincere worshipers of God. Or maybe to just say it this way. The best way to live under the sun is to live in the sun. And that is the book of Ecclesiastes. It is setting our hearts to God by exhausting the vanity of living life apart from him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing book of the Bible. Ecclesiastes, perhaps untouched, and yet we see the power that you've given us in this word to declare that you are God and there is no other and that life is vain apart from learning to love you, to trust you, and to know your goodness. So Lord, for those who have come here today who have never truly trusted in your son, who are not God-centered, are not worshipers of you, and yet they see the vanity of life, Solomon nailed it. And they went live, but they pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from self and my sin. And this morning I put my trust in Jesus, the God-man, who paid for sins and gives a life by virtue of his resurrection. Lead me. And Lord, for all of us, fill our lives with joy and purpose as we grow in the worship of you. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.